Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurologist talks about an exciting new medication for people who have ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Based on the research that I think this is something that, you know, we, we potentially could have a cure or a cocktail to slow the disease within the next five years. A psychiatrist tells about a mental health network for students at SUNY college campuses across the state. Students will access it through their local college counseling center. Counselors identify people who might benefit from either specialist psychotherapy and they send a referral over online and then usually are able to see a student within one to two weeks of, of receiving a referral. And the editor of the Healing Muse Literary and Visual Arts Journal reflects on 20 years of publication. In the Muse, I think that you will find, I felt that, I've been there. I find that very affirming. All that and more coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a psychiatrist tells about the mental health network for college students that he created. Then, the Healing Muse editor shares the newest issue of the Literary and Visual Arts Journal. But first, a neurologist talks about the exciting new medication for people with Lou Gehrig's disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A new drug combination seems to help slow the decline of patients with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And here to talk with me about this exciting development is Dr. Jenny Meyer. She's a neurologist at Upstate who specializes in neuromuscular medicine. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Meyer. Thanks so much for having me back, Amber. Now, I used shorthand for the disease ALS, which stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Can you give us a brief description of what this disease is? Sure. Uh, ALS is a, neuro, a progressive neurodegenerative condition, um, which is characterized by death of motor neurons, which are the cells that tell your muscles to move from your nervous system. Um, in ALS, there are two different types of motor neurons. There's the ones that live in your brain and the ones that live in your spine. And these, uh, basically, these neurons send signals from your brain to your muscles to tell them to move. Um, in this particular condition, those motor neurons die. And so the ability for the person to control their muscle movements becomes challenged. And is this, does this affect men and women equally? Yeah, so uh, men, well, typically, actually, before the age of 65, it's more common in men, but after the age of 65, it's actually equal prevalence between genders, and these patients will develop muscle weakness, trouble swallowing, trouble breathing, slowly over a period of usually three to five years. So I was going to ask, how do people normally find out that they have this? But So they may develop one of these symptoms where their muscles are are feeling weak or weakness maybe? Yeah, usually the most common presentation is with weakness in one arm or one leg that is uh, painless. So they'll notice that they may have difficulty with their coordination, their muscles seem like they're shrinking or they notice twitching of the muscles. Um, there are other presentations, however, that start with mainly trouble swallowing. Um, so not all patients with ALS look alike. Uh, which is, makes it a challenging disease for doctors to recognize. I see. Now, do we know what causes these motor neurons to die? I think they're still trying to sort out exactly what causes them uh, to, to become injured. Um, at this point, it's definitely a combination of environmental and uh, genetic mechanisms at this point. Uh, we know that uh, these... There, there are different groups of people that tend to be slightly higher risk for ALS, for example, military veterans. Um, we don't know why they have a higher risk, whether it has to do with exposure due to overseas travel or whether or not it has to do with infections that they might come across due to their state where they're stationed, um, or if it has to do with the amount of athleticism and injuries that can occur as a military personnel. Um, so there are some 
different leads that this that the scientists are looking into to try to figure out the cause. But at this point, it's still considered what's called a multifactorial disease. We don't know all the features of why it happened. So can you tell us how um, ALS has been treated before this new drug combination, which we are going to talk about, but can you tell us what you've had to treat it with prior to this? The two drugs that the uh, Food and Drug Administration have approved for ALS to date are Rilazole and Adarabone. Uh, Rilazole is a tablet that was uh, approved in the 1990s that uh, reduced in patients with ALS, it reduced their mortality. So it showed that patients who were on the drug needed a ventilator three months later than people who were not, uh, who would have needed a ventilator sooner. The other drug, Adarivone, is a drug that was approved based on its ability to preserve function in ALS. So patients had less morbidity, which is disability. And so patients on that drug compared to placebo had uh, preservation of their function, which could be ability to climb stairs, feed themselves, um, you know, swallow food. Well, tell us about this new combination. Are they, is it a combination of those two drugs you just mentioned, or are these new medications? So actually, the new medication that was recently um, described in the Centaur trial uh, is a drug called AMX0035. Um, it's a combination of two substances, sodium phenylbutyrate and, uh, and uh, taurosidiol. Um, basically, there was some evidence, preclinical evidence, that in um, models for nerve preservation that these two substances could be useful to preserve motor neuron function. Um, and so uh, a company called Amelix uh, developed this combination and worked with the group at Mass General Hospital to create a study to see if it was effective in ALS patients. So the trial that just completed the Centaur trial was a phase two, which is a safety and efficacy trial. Um, that was uh, placebo controlled, meaning that the patients were either given drug or uh, a blank, if you will. Um, and they measured to see in that time period that they were given medication, whether it affected their function, which uh, is uh, like their abilities to do things for themselves, as well as their time to death to see if it was uh, a, you know, potentially curative for the disease. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jenny Meyer. She's a neurologist who takes care of many patients with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. So when news of this Centaur study was reported, did you have patients wanting to try it? Absolutely. Uh, I think my phone and email were immediately inundated when the New York Times broke the story. Um, Unfortunately, the way research typically works is that a small, usually small companies or, or smaller uh, pharmaceutical companies generate these substances for trials, but they aren't big enough to do mass production uh, at the onset because they don't, they don't know whether it's going to work or not. So a lot of money gets put up front from either grants, in this case, uh, one of the, the financial resources for this uh, came from the ice bucket challenge, which you might remember from a few years ago when people were dumping large buckets of ice over themselves on social media and trying to convince their family members to donate towards the ALS association. That grant uh, went to this group, uh, this uh, business, which actually was started by two college students uh, who had the idea while they were at Yale, I believe. And uh, the medication was uh, picked up by Mass General Hospital, which has a large ALS population in their clinic there. Um, and they studied uh, about 137 of them for the drug. So the company itself isn't mass producing the drug yet. It's not widely available. Um, the F Food and Drug Administration would have to approve it uh, for them to get insurance to, to help provide funding to pay for the drug. So. There's a lot of upfront costs in research to uh, get medications to patients. So really it can't be prescribed right now. No, there's a group of, um, there's a, a political action group called I Am ALS, which is uh, trying to lobby the Food and Drug Administration to uh, forego some of their typical safety requirements for drugs to be uh, 
uh, for the drug to be approved early. Um, some uh, companies, if they're large enough and have the financial resources, can do something called compassionate use, which means that the patients can get the drug early. However, uh, this company, being that it's very small, uh, was not able to uh, produce enough drug for the number of patients that want it. So, at this point, um, our hope is that the Food and Drug Administration will uh, potentially approve the drug for uh, the fact that a lot of patients with ALS may pass pass or die in the time that it would take to do what they usually require for a drug to be approved, which is called a phase three trial, where they 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 test the drug in a larger group of people to prove its efficacy um, to slow the disease. Once there is uh, the FDA approval and the medication combination is available, this AMX35, is this something, is this a treatment that would be appropriate for anyone who has ALS or are there some disqualifiers? So I think at this point, um, from what I've seen from what the FDA has done for other drugs, the other two drugs for ALS, they typically approve it for all patients, but as a research Researchers have to define specific criteria of what they're looking, which types of patients they're going to look for change in. And so often the trials require specific criteria. So in this particular trial, for example, they studied early onset patients. Um, but as we know from the Adaravone trial, which was already approved, uh, they made a broad statement saying that it was approved for all ALS patients, not just early onset. So or earlier in the disease. So I expect that if the FDA does approve the drug, they will likely keep that theme of, of approving it for all patients with the condition. Um, although the trials themselves are often done in a select group of patients. Now, is it a, is it a pill that one would take or is it an injection? What, how, how would it work? Uh, I think, uh, uh, the formulation that they used for the trial was a tablet, um, and it actually it was a or a satchel of powder. Um, they uh, actually were able to give it to patients with feeding tubes because it was a powder, uh, so it could be made into a slurry and poured down the tube, or um, compounded into a tablet or capsule uh, to be swallowed. So at this point, I think it's um, that's the formulation that they'll they'll probably approve. I see. Well, can you talk about other treatments that are in development? Uh, I know you described how this is a disease where the motor neurons are, are dying or have died. Are there any medications that would reverse or, you know, bring those neurons back to life? Is there a way to do that? Uh, we, uh, I, there are a number of, there are about 50, I think, ALS trials currently going on uh, for different substances across the world. Um, I don't know the specifics of all the different compounds that they're testing. Um, there, I know, are a number of very promising mechanisms that they're hoping to reduce damage to the neurons. You know, before basically they're trying to treat ALS before it becomes too far gone because we know that once a neuron is dead, is dead. There's so far there's not been any um, treatments to date that have ever resurrected dead neurons, but. I think the goal is to try to reduce the damage before it gets too far along to try to reverse the disease as opposed to, or prevent the disease from worsening as opposed to um, bringing something back to life that has already been gone. Well, how long until you think there might be uh, what we might call a cure or something that would make ALS a chronic but less debilitating disease? I'd say based on the research that I think this is something that, you know, we, we potentially could have a cure or a cocktail to slow the disease within the next five years. Um, because of the fact that research often takes time and there's a number of trials currently ongoing, um, usually the average clinical trial takes between two and three years to complete. Um, but then they, you know, then they have to kind of crunch all the numbers and see uh, see what the data shows, but I, I would say that based on the number, the sheer number of research trials available now, we're much closer than we ever have been to curing this disease. Well, AMX35, that's the uh, combination that we're talking about now, though that's the next thing you think might be available for people really, right? Yeah, I think that if the FDA goes ahead and approves it without the phase three, this would be another medication to add to the 
uh, cocktail of uh, treatments for ALS uh, with rilazole and adarivone. Um, and then additional treatments that become approved down the road. I, I think because the mechanism of ALS seems to be from coming from different sources, the way that we treat it will probably be with a combination of drugs that affect the neurons in different ways. Oh, very good to know. Thank you to neurologist Jenny Meyer. She's an assistant professor of neurology at Upstate, specializing in neuromuscular medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Hundreds of students at SUNY college campuses have access to a mental health network based at Upstate, next on HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Hundreds of students at SUNY campuses across New York State now have access to a mental health network that was assembled almost three years ago by an upstate psychiatrist. Today, I'm talking about this network with Dr. Christopher Lucas. He's the vice chair of hospital psychiatry services and director of the SUNY Student Telehealth Counseling Network. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Lucas. Thank you very much. So please tell us how and why you started this network. So really, it was um, to address um, a basic need across most college campuses, um, particularly in more rural parts of the state, in order to be actually able to access specialty mental health care. Uh, when we started, we were really thinking that it would address uh, both uh, online psychotherapy and uh, telepsychiatry. Uh, but as we gained greater experience, it seemed that the primary need was really being able to access a psychiatrist in a timely manner. What we found in some campuses, um, it might take up to five months to get an initial evaluation and appointment with a psychiatrist, which in the life of a student is an eternity. That's a more than a semester. Absolutely. Well, now, if I understand correctly, by the end of 2020, there'll be about 18 SUNY college campuses that are part of the network. And up until now, all of the counseling and psychiatry services have been provided by professionals like yourself at Upstate. But now providers from SUNY Downstate are going to be joining the network, too. Is that right? Yes. So we currently have 13 uh, SUNY campuses that we provide services to. Uh, we're looking to expand that probably with another three or four campuses. And SUNY Downstate is going to join us um, in providing services for an additional five campuses. Well, now that this has been in operation for going on three years, um, what have you seen the demand for this service to be? So the demand has steadily grown. Um, I think that um, there's sometimes a bit of a learning curve between uh, campuses. So that the very first year they're part of it, uh, that they sort of are somewhat tentative. But um, soon as they're into the sort of second year of participation, uh, the number of referrals grows. Um, we're getting very good uh, acceptability. And uh, so the students like this way of accessing services. Now with COVID, things have become a little different in that in some ways, um, you know, we were doing this with telepsychiatry for a couple of years before everybody went to doing everything online. Um, so there is a little bit of sort of screen fatigue happening at the moment in that um, the sort of students are probably a little fed up of having to do everything online. Um, so that um, some of them are actually wishing we could do things more in person. Oh. Well, walk us through how the network operates. How do, how do students access the service? Um, so primarily, uh, students will access it through their local college counselling centre. Uh, so most of them will have a counsellor um, as part of school. And then the counsellors um, identify people who might uh, benefit from either specialist psychotherapy or telepsychiatry. And they send a referral over online. Uh, we review it and then usually are able to see a student within one to two weeks of, of receiving a referral. Uh, sort of that's markedly different from what they could, might receive in the community. 
So how long does the visit typically last? And are they offered, um, is it just weekdays, weeknights, weekends? Um, Again, this is sort of an evolving uh, service. So um, initially, the way that it worked was that students would go um, to a designated room within the counseling center, would connect with us uh, electronically, and then we would uh, provide services from Upstate. Um, as COVID hit and people started to either not be on campus or to be back at home, uh, that we started providing services to wherever the students were at their period of time. Um, college counseling centers generally don't provide evening and weekend hours, uh, but we have the ability to do that, um, particularly when we're not now tied to seeing someone um, in a designated space on campus. And as you mentioned, like with the pandemic, I mean, probably more students are at home taking classes. And then, and then what happens during the gap between semesters? Is this service available? Yeah, so... Um, Typically, we carry on to see people um, throughout the semester over their winter breaks. Uh, now, most colleges now are sending their students home at, the, at Thanksgiving and not welcoming them back until the end of January. So that winter break has become a little longer and they're even more reliant on our services. So do students have uh, a copay or how are they charged for this sort of service? Um, so there's no charge whatsoever. Um, this is in funded by a, a grant from New York State. Um, each year the legislature has funded the program um, and we're very happy to be able to offer this at no cost. You know, many students don't have health insurance um, or they don't have health insurance that covers mental health services or there are significant deductibles and co-pays that become a, a barrier to them accessing. So this has really been one of the great things about the program is that we've been able to do it at no cost to the students. Now, you can match a student up with a psychologist or a psychiatrist or social worker? Um, so primarily, um, most of our personnel are psychiatric residents and psychiatric nurse practitioners. Um, one of the big benefits of the program, in addition to providing services to SUNY students, is we actually provide a great educational experience to our residents who often don't have much experience in, in initiating treatment with relatively treatment naive, younger um, patients. So it's been a very good learning experience for them. And I think when we think about how can we expand this further, it may well be including other train, senior trainees, whether it's nurse practitioner fellows, uh, family medicine um, fellowships. Um, so that I think it becomes a sort of dual purpose thing. We're providing services to as many campuses who, who wish them, but we're also giving a real training uh, opportunity to our own trainees. And I think that's why Downstate were interested in this um, in addition. Now, what happens if the uh, provider recommends medication for the student? Well, about 80% of our cases are actually telepsychiatry, so they're routinely getting medication. Uh, so we're doing electronic prescribing to whichever pharmacy they're at. Um, the goal of the program is really initial evaluation, stabilization, and then transition to ongoing care in the community. So uh, we try and identify at an early stage a primary care provider who might be able to continue a medication that we've initiated and stabilized. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Christopher Lucas. He's a psychiatrist at Upstate, and he organized a mental health network that is helping hundreds of students at SUNY campuses across the state. Now, let me ask you, what happens when mental illness is unrecognized or untreated in college students? Um, you know, I think it's become increasingly recognized that this has a direct link to academic success and retention. Um, so not addressing the mental health needs of students leads to increased failure in classes, not uh, retaining their students, um, and ultimately has a major impact on their ultimate success. Um, most major mental illnesses have their onset in the late teenage, early 20s, um, exactly the time when uh, people are, are in colleges. Um, when I started this program, I was expecting a lot of people developing uh, psychiatric illness for the first time um, when they were a college student. But actually what we've seen is that increasing numbers of individuals who had um, psychiatric issues in childhood and adolescence 
and now able to go to college and we are inheriting those people um, who have sometimes fairly significant and complex mental health needs. Um, addressing them early, addressing them well, really sets them up for academic success. Well, what are the mental health issues that you see most frequently through this program? Um, so the prim primary issues we see are anxiety, depression, um, suicidal thinking, um, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. Okay. And I know it's sort of an individualized um, therapy for each person. There's not one blanket fix for, for each of those issues, right? Correct. You know, generally, um, all of these conditions are best treated with a combination of therapy and medication. Um, so that we find that we work very closely with the counselors at the um, campuses of origin. Um, and then some of our trainees also do specialist psychotherapy, such as CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. Now, do you have any standard advice you can offer for someone who's feeling frustration with the quarantine orders? Um, so I think that there's a couple of things that can be done. Um, in terms of the quarantine, uh, you really need to uh, distinguish the things over which you have some control from the things over which you do not have control and don't try and confuse the two. Um, even though we re, um, we're often talking about socially distancing, um, that's actually the last thing we should be doing. We should be doing physical distancing, but socially connecting. Um, and much as people are fed up of screens, it actually is a, a major way that people can connect. Um, also the concept of um, bubbles, where you have the same group of people that you interact with, um, all of whom have the same exposures, um, so together you can still be with people, uh, but you're not uh, continually exposing yourself to new sources of infection. Well, let me ask you why mental health professionals and psychiatric care in, in general seems to be in high demand. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of stigma uh, associated with both seeking care um, and uh, just acknowledging that you have a psychiatric illness or a mental health problem. Um, that's actually been one of the good things about doing our online um, psychiatry in that there's no stigma of having to go to a county mental health clinic or a private practitioner. You just sign on and in the privacy of your own room are able to access mental health care. So maybe more people are seeking it because they know they can do it sort of in a private, a more private way. Yeah, you know, even uh, we had some interesting things where uh, the whole campus once um, was closed down because of snow, uh, but we were still able to have our sessions. People were still able to go, even though they weren't able to get out, out of their dorm rooms. That's great. Do you think that the pandemic has made mental health issues um, more urgent? I think it's both made them more urgent and it's um, driving an in, a big increase. Uh, you talked about the frustration of, um, but there's also frustration, there's fear, there's lost opportunities, uh, there's impacts on people's future financial well-being. Um, there's the um, losses of things that they previously accounted upon being able to access. Um, so all of these things lead to both anxiety and depression. Um, I think we're going to have a real epidemic of mental health issues uh, secondary to COVID uh, that will come over the next year. Now, Upstate being an academic medical center, you mentioned um, that a network like this actually helps you as well to educate residents from the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department. Do you think that some of these providers will end up going into sort of the college mental health services? I think the realities of things is that college mental health is not a very well reimbursed activity. Um, so um, it's hard to have equivalent salaries that you might have working in a hospital or a private clinic. Um, but hopefully we've piqued their interest because they are a very uh, challenging and rewarding population to work with. So that might be why uh, some of the college campuses have trouble providing mental health services and have that like five month long wait list, right? You know, I think there are two things going on. One, they're not able to compete financially uh, with other places. Um, many of the sites say as soon as they've lost the psychiatrist that they had, they're never able to replace them. And also the resources in the community are usually not geared towards dealing with um, educated young uh, population. 
So they may have a very diverse population, a very aging population with uh, more serious mental health issues, which can be really quite off-putting. Um, some of the providers don't understand uh, the intricacies of dealing with college students. Um, as we talked before about the time pressures of needing to address things in a timely manner, but also just being aware of what a college student's life is like and being able to adjust your treatment to take account of that. For instance, you know, we don't offer 9am appointments on um, days when there are classes because people are going to want to go to class. Um, we find that students don't answer emails, so we don't really communicate with them via email. We try and communicate with them via secure text. Um, you know, understanding your population really helps get a connection uh, and hopefully improve outcomes. Well, it's really nice to know about this service. I, I'm appreciative that you came on to take time to explain it to us. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to Dr. Christopher Lucas, the Vice Chair of Hospital Psychiatry Services at Upstate, and also the Director of the SUNY Student Telecounseling Network. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Stay with Upstate's HealthLink on Air for a visit with the editor of The Healing Muse. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Healing Muse is a literary and visual arts journal that is celebrating 20 years. It's published by Upstate's Center for Bioethics and Humanities, and today I'm speaking with its editor, Deirdre Nealon. She reads an excerpt from The Healing Muse at the end of every HealthLink on Air program that airs on WRVO on Sundays at 6 a.m. and 9 p.m. Deirdre, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, Amber, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. Well, 20 years is really a long time for a publication. So I want to talk with you about longevity. Um, do you think that medically themed fiction, poetry, narratives, memoirs, essays, and visual arts are as popular and necessary today as they were in the year 2000 when the muse was born? Um, yes, I do. Uh, and I think that it's been very gratifying to see as the 20 years have gone by how many other medical schools have joined us in producing some kind of literary arts journal uh, and incorporating the literary arts into their curriculum. So I think, yeah, it's uh, very important to have a place that people who are studying to be in healthcare or people who are using the benefits that healthcare offers us uh, it's, it's wonderful to have a place where they can reflect on their experiences, write them down, take pictures, draw, and have that go out across the airwaves and uh, around the country and around the world. Because what we find out is that people are so alike, so much more alike than we're not. And, you know, especially in this time when division seems so, uh, in, our, in every conversation that we have, our divisions seem to be taking precedence. But in the muse, I think that you will find, I felt that, I know what that feels like, I've, I've been there. Um, and I, I find that very affirming. Is that sort of the overall goal of the journal to sort of bring people together and get them to talk about things that they have in common or? Yes, you know, when the journal started, it was uh, Bonnie St. Andrews, who was a faculty member here and a, a beloved colleague. It was her idea that Upstate should have some kind of place where nurses and physicians could talk about what their feelings were. Um, and that seemed to be, although it's, it's wild to think it now, but that seemed to be somewhat of a radical idea at the time. And uh, she, I think, would be so happy to find out that her initial idea of a place for civilized conversations and de-stressing uh, has become such a vital part of our identity as a university. Well, I want to talk with you about the submissions you receive for this issue. You have a, a whole section devoted to the pandemic. So did you seek work with a pandemic theme or did it just arrive? Well, you know, that, that was very interesting too. I 
our, our deadline is April 15th. That's when we close every year two submissions. And I think that Kathy Faber-Langendoon, the associate editor and I were talking in early April when it had become very apparent that this pandemic was going to be a very serious uh, part of our community. Should we ask for some work about it? And so we sent out a call to probably 10 or 12 of our, what I would call regular family members, people that almost every year, year in and year out, they write to us and send us their work. And we just asked them if they did have anything they wanted to give us, we would look through it. There were no guarantees that we would print it. It's very difficult to write occasional poetry. I think if you talk to any poet, they don't really like it when someone says to them, could you give me a poem? My, my parents are having their 50th anniversary and we'd like to, that, that is tough, you know? So um, we did get some, some very fine work back and we decided that we would start the issue off with this sense of pandemic. But I think that if you go through the issue, you will discover that there are other pieces we probably could have front loaded. They weren't written at the time that we knew we had a pandemic. But this sense of dread or fear, or I feel isolated, I'm lonely, I think that it does um, transfer very easily into some of the other works as well. One of the poems had a description that stuck with me. It said, as pandemic ravages a population trapped in a tug of war between faith and fear. What do you think the author was trying to convey? And, and the author is Gloria Heffernan. Yes, Gloria is a wonderful regular contributor to our pages, and I'll be reading some of her work uh, in the weeks to come. Uh, I hope she's listening to this because I would first start out to say that I never presume that I can interpret what it is that the poet meant. But her poem, Covenant, uses a uh, quote from the Bible at the beginning uh, as an epigraph. And I think she's trying to get us to think of the spirituality that also is a part of this moment of fear and disease. And so when she says, we are ravaged, trapped in a tug of war between faith and fear, I think that's in each of us when we wake up in the morning, there's, you want to believe we will come through, but you are also so scared all the time of all the people that you love who you haven't seen or you can't see, and you wonder, you know, what, which, one, which one is going to rule my day today? Will it be faith in people, faith in medicine, faith in science, faith in government? Or will it be the fear that really nothing's working, everything's breaking down, and I don't know what to do? But her poem, it's beautiful. She's talking about a rainbow, but obviously the symbolism pushes us into recognizing that we can always find faith. We can always find ways to believe something's going, something good is going to come. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Deirdre Nealon. She's the editor of the literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, which has just put out its 20th issue. So in another poem, uh, Dr. Peter Cronkright writes about the virus taking hold and the fears and the worry that healthcare providers must have during this pandemic. So it made me wonder who's taking care of the caregivers during this time? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And there are several pieces in the journal that do talk about how to do self-care or how uh, love for other people is what carries the healthcare workers through sometimes. But I loved um, Dr. Cronkite's poem because you're not really aware until the end that he's also talking about the HIV pandemic that we had. And so it was both cautionary and I thought affirming because as he, as he says in his poem, uh, Gather round foot of the bed, stand your ground while it spreads worry. Point fingers, so much unknown, panic lingers, our limits shown. That's so profound about how we didn't know anything about AIDS. Sometimes we reacted out of fear and we weren't really great at what we were doing, but we did eventually with science and 
I think the code that so many of our healthcare workers follow through on to always keep the patient first and foremost in mind, it carried us through. And I loved his poem because I thought making rounds, that's what a physician nurse does every day. They have to make their rounds. They're talking about their patients. They're talking to their patients. Of course, in the pandemic, they can't always talk to their patients. I mean, we've had long stretches of time where the doctors and nurses have told us that they're standing away from, and you know, you're covered by protective equipment and you can't really hear, um, yet they're there. They are that steady presence who making rounds, they are trying to figure out a way to save your life. It's, so I loved, I loved that poem that when it turns out in the end that he's talking about also 1983. Okay, so here we are 2020 and I wanna believe we're gonna come through again. Good perspective. Well, Ellen Goldsmith writes about this sensation that I think maybe a lot of people are feeling where time is all messed up. And, and she says, she writes, how to go deeper into the mystery of time, taking time, saving time, losing time. And what about the 11th hour? What do you think, what do you think the author meant then? <laughs> well, I, I love this poem. I mean, the title of it is, I am now an understudy. And so her poem takes us through how the pandemic has canceled so many of the plans she had made. And so now she takes that word apart, which poets often do. They love to break the words down. What is she studying under? Under the fear of the pandemic, under the limits of the pandemic. And she realizes the gift, if we can call it that, one of the gifts of the pandemic is this new appreciation perhaps for time. And then as you just read, she goes through all the things that we talk about with time. And she comes up with that image that we've often talked about, the 11th hour. The 11th hour is the scary hour, I think. I mean, to me, the 11th hour, it's like right before midnight. Um, it's before a major change, let's say. So she's asking, um, what about it? What, what's gonna happen? And then she takes us in the next stanza, which ends the poem, to a lovely image of her as a child that all of us can relate to when she says, um, I remember we would just be starting on a trip and we hadn't even reached the Holland Tunnel. And I would say to my parents, are we there yet? And I think that's the question that all of us keep asking the people, parents who are home with their children attempting to do jobs plus oversee schooling, teachers who want to be home with their children but who are also trying to be with their students and oversee what their, their kids are doing. And then of course, all the people who are working on the front lines. Um, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet, but we know I think we're, it's understudy, it is an understudy, and we're, we're working toward it. So I, again, I took it very hopefully by the end of the poem. Well, let me ask you, which submissions left a mark on you as the editor? Oh my goodness. Um, so many of them leave a mark on me. Uh, I think that maybe off the top of my head, I would, I would encourage people to read Pam Freeman's long poem called from a woman's book of uncommon prayer. And uh, obviously from that title, you get a sense of her biblical uh, knowledge and uh, tribute, I think. Um, but just let me say, I'll just read the opening lines. The first section is called, you ask and you wonder. You can read the Bible, God's word made public and every other book on the subject and get no closer to the mystery of your speck of divine infinity. Why did Lazarus get a second chance at the wedding feast? Did Jesus dance? Was the mark of Cain forgiveness or stain? Which is harder, fear or pain? Did Peter teach sailors to walk on water? Are those kids stuck in limbo that Herod slaughtered? You ask and you wonder, you bend people's ears, you bore them to death, you bore them to tears. I'll just stop there. It's just a very lyrical um, walk through the, the deep questions we have in our lives. Well, let me ask you about the cover because the cover has this drawing, this very pretty drawing of a, a tree with a yellow bird. Why was that selected for the cover? Uh, again, you know, covers are always so difficult for us. We're, we want 
we want it to be something that is muse-like. And the muse was always usually, I mean, a person that inspired the, the artist. Um, and we got many, many uh, submissions as we always do and just kept looking and we really hadn't seen it. But this artist whose name is Karen J. Burns and she's a local artist, we happened to know her work and we were looking on her website and we saw this picture, which she calls early spring dawn. And all of us, the first time we saw it just smiled. And this was in May when there was not very much to be smiling about. People were so you know, frantic, just anxious, what's happening, what's happening. So we looked at this picture and during our launch last week, uh, Kathy Faber Langendoon read um, Emily Dickinson's poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. And she said how when she had looked at this picture, she was thinking of Emily Dickinson's poem that this early spring dawn promises us, again, hope, renewal, the cycle continues, we will get through this. So I think that's why it just felt light. And, and so little has felt light lately that um, this one, we showed it to everybody and they were like, oh yes, that's the cover, <laughs> that's the cover. Well, before we wrap up, let's, uh, let's tell people how they can obtain a copy of the journal. What's the, what's the easiest way for someone to get a copy of this? I would say go to our website. It's the Healing Muse. It's all one word, thehealingmuse.org. And there's information there with phone numbers that you could call and order, or you could write to us and uh, order. Um, it's $10 still. And I think it's, it would make a great gift. Uh, the holiday season is coming and I know many people are nervous. Are we gonna be able to get out and shop? Um, you don't have to go out. You could just buy this and it's uh, easy to mail to your friends that you're not gonna be able to see. Um, and I think it's just a wonderful way to support artists who are also suffering through the pandemic because galleries were closed for so long and museums have been closed and where they try to sell their work. We have really wonderful artists in here. Um, it's a great way to support our writers and artists. Good points. Well, I appreciate you coming to share the information about the new edition. And I, I want to remind WRVO listeners to stay tuned until the end of HealthLink on Air to hear Deidre Nealon. Uh, she reads an excerpt from the pages of The Healing Muse every Sunday. Thank you so much to Dr. Deirdre Nealon. She's editor of The Healing Muse, Upstate's literary and visual arts journal. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Coronavirus has created so much suffering, physical, emotional, mental. Allison Turjek, a writer and mental health advocate in Connecticut, touches on all these in her meditative poem, Shelter in Place. Silent streets, sleet whispers to your heart, you imagine your chambers are empty classrooms, and each thought is a pupil pacing outside a locked door, drenched. In your early life as a box of rain soaked on your mother's porch, you found snails to play with. She found you kneeling in mud, not the type of girl she expected, yet there you were, so she fed you. Still, you starved for words she didn't have, and empathy she never tasted. There are hours wedged between a deep breath and a phone call, years between, are you okay? And this is my story. Instead, you turn to newspapers. They tally deaths, hospitalizations, stitch band-aids for bruised markets, limit how much pasta you buy, but not how much history you cradle in your limbs or when you let go. Loss is a pile of misshapen fruit, dented cans, and concerned stares. Its fingertips smudge walls. It sneezes in stairwells and refuses quarantine. Every time your lungs empty, they beg to be filled. How long can you hold each breath? Have you ever met shelter? Can you count backwards to safety? Try? Mom, 
Glad you're okay. I'm fine, except when I'm not. Have you known a place? Eric V.D. Luft retired as curator of historical collections at Upstate Medical University. He is a publisher and has written, edited, or translated over 650 publications. The sonnet he sent us is a gut punch reality check to the pandemic's effects. Here is Whose Lots Are Worst? Those never sure if hands and face are clean? Those barred from funerals of dear ones gone? Returning tourists caged in quarantine? Those with no toilet paper in their john? Bored athletes, teams, and fans deprived of play? Those who must order food from Amazon? Poor low-wage workers now without their pay? Heroic nurses? Hermits off the grids? Scared, battered wives who cannot run away? Sick parents with 11 homebound kids? Courageous first responders sensing dread? Neglected homeless, hopeless on the skids? You think your lot is worst? Then stay in bed. But those whose lots are really worst are dead. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a doctor of physical therapy explains exactly how our bodies benefit from exercise. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.